Let's go for a walkie flint. Nice day for it, huh? We don't do this enough. Oh, we really don't. Well, everybody, beautiful day though it is. I gotta say, I'm, I'm smelling tangible smoke from what must be gotta be the wildfires like in California and Eastern Washington. There's no, no way this is uh, just normal area smog for today here in Seattle. Um, I'm recording while Flint and I are taking a little walk around the block. We're using our headset, our earbuds. Uh, so forgive me here. It's a little windy at first. Uh, we're on a bit more of an exposed road right here initially as we get out of the house and I can feel the wind blowing by me. So I'm sure a little bit of that will be picked up um, on the recording. Oh neat, my neighbors have pears and apples that I didn't know they had. It's kind of neat. Uh, we will be dropping down to a little bit more of a sheltered little side street here in a moment and we'll try to you know, just gonna have some fun and include a little bit of walkabout audio for you today by way of introduction. Uh, and uh, speaking of introductions, uh, welcome, I'm Steve. This is uh, me walking through my neighborhood recording for episode 51 of the Baked and Awake podcast. Um, thank you for joining me. Thank you for returning. If you're a returning listener, thank you to listeners who may be dropping in now and then that I didn't even realize I had. Uh, my friend Adam, my friend Karin, uh, my good buddy Mick. I hope a few of you hear your shout outs. Hello. Our neighbor's dog, one of two big, beautiful Bouviers, kind of a, kind of like a Schnauzer poodle, I guess. Bouviers, something like that. Uh, Flint, my doggy here, he's a smooth collie, smooth-coated collie they call him. Yeah, I'm walking down, looking at the lake right now, everybody, and this entire area is under a blanket of smog, serious smoke fog, so um, sending positive thoughts out for the listeners I may have in California, especially in affected areas. I understand the wildfires in that area right now are, as of a few days ago, they were the second largest 
ever in California's history. I don't know how long that can go on before they become the first largest in California history. Um, a lot of cannabis farms, outdoor farms, being affected down in California right now, for sure, because of these fires, and definitely seeing people posting about that on Instagram, on Facebook, um, you know, all over the place. Uh, so definitely, yeah, scary, scary stuff for a lot of folks. People could be, well, I mean, whole areas are, you know, being lost. Residential areas, forget farms, people's homes. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, just sort of, you know, can't help but observing that and remarking upon it. Interestingly, as I've been listening back to some of my earliest episodes uh, from just about this time last year of the podcast, uh, Canada was having serious wildfires at the beginning of uh, August and the middle of August last year when I was just getting started with the podcast and recording some of my first episodes. Um, I'm happy to say I don't know right now of any major fires going on up in Canada at this time, but uh, it is interesting and seasonal and super unfortunate um, you know, that we're talking about this kind of stuff. Yet again, here we are a year later and, you know, different different area, California instead of Canada, but major devastation nevertheless, once again. Uh, so much so that we can see, you know, that downstream effect in the form of the smog and smoke uh, all the way down here. So, anyhow, uh, on the show here on... Taking a little, taking care of business there, sir. That's fine. So, well, it's a real dog walk, people. We're taking care of dogs and taking care of dog poo. Neighbor Travis, I'm right by your house. If you ever listen to this podcast, episode 51, I'm standing outside your house recording it and giving you a shout-out, buddy, and cleaning up after my dog. (laughs) So anyway, yeah, Baked and Wake podcast. This is your first visit. Super glad to have you. Just about a year into this, and uh, right here on this episode is probably going to be the only place where I'm going to make much of a mention of that. Uh, Very excited to have made it this full year. Um, You know, in about another week by the time I record the next episode following this one, it should be for sure over a year of uh, just past the year mark. Uh, I think the 17th was the first episode last year in 2017. Um, Anyhow, what do we do on this podcast? Why do we do it? Well, we talk about cannabis. We're one of many, many different projects and creative uh, endeavors out there seeking to normalize, you know, responsible adult cannabis use seeking to 
try to represent it in a uh, realistic light, okay? Um, you know, not just a relentlessly forced positive light, but in a realistic uh, light that shows it for the wonderful... Wow, what a beautiful garden I'm passing right here in these folks' backyard. They did a much better job trellising their tomatoes than I did. They're, you can really see the vines. Let's see if I can sneak a quick... That was a little cold open from, well, myself. <laughs> what am I saying? Uh, yeah, and uh, welcome to episode 51 of the Baked and Awake podcast, where we talk about cannabis, conspiracies, and you. That's right. We get high. We talk cannabis education, history, facts, lifestyle, you name it. And then, since we're high, we usually wax philosophical, controversial, Dare I say it, even conspiratorial. I welcome you all back today, and we're getting ready to jump in on our first story, which is about the TSA's hidden program, known just now to the general public as Quiet Skies. All right, so this story comes from the Boston Globe. It's being covered by a number of different outlets. This is nothing um, that isn't getting out there uh, widely right now. This story is from a couple weeks back, the 28th of July. Uh, the writer is Jenna Winter. And um, so just personal note, I haven't flown much. Uh, more than uh, I'd say I could count it on one hand, the number of times I've flown uh, since 9-11. Um, have flown internationally since 9-11 um, and flown domestically, but don't enjoy it. Don't enjoy the airport experience these days under um, the paradigm of the TSA, Transportation Safety Administration, um, who, you know, has sort of uh, massively impacted our airport experiences ever since 9-11 and the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, etc. Um, so... You know, this is um, one of many stories we've heard over the years of the TSA behaving oddly, behaving badly, behaving um, perhaps um, exceeding the scope of their charter. Uh, but let's let the writer of this story help us out by leading us in. And... She begins by asking us a few questions. Did you scan the boarding area from afar? Have a cold, penetrating stare? Sleep on the plane? Use the bathroom? Talk to others? This is just some of the information that federal air marshals collect on thousands of regular U.S. citizens under a secret domestic surveillance program. Welcome to the Quiet Skies. 
So uh, as, as is often the case here, continuing theme, uh, mass surveillance, domestic surveillance, police state, big brother, Orwellian uh, sort of paradigm that we're living in, the illusion of freedom. These are things that really chap my hide. So they're things that always jump out to me when I run across these stories. And so we're sharing it today with you. All right. Well, uh, what have we got? I have a, uh, just like on my walk earlier, um, I've got a little pre-roll of some of my friend's homegrown mystery strain. It's been treating me real well the last couple of weeks. Uh, grabbed an ounce and been making my way through it mellowly. Um, and yeah, got one of these Randy's Wired, my new favorite rolling paper. I still rock crutches in them, you know, little tips, um, even though it's totally unnecessary, excuse me, with the Randy's. Let me fire this thing up, though, and we'll get into this story. Federal air marshals have begun following ordinary U.S. citizens not suspected of a crime or on any terrorist watch list, and collecting extensive information about their movements and behavior under a new domestic surveillance program that is drawing criticism from within the agency. The previously undisclosed program, called Quiet Skies, specifically targets travelers who are, quote, not under investigation by any agency and are not in the terrorist screening database. According to a Transportation Security Administration bulletin in March. Oh, I see they've changed the name of the TSA. If I'm not mistaken, once upon a time, that was the Transportation Safety Administration. Now we have the Transportation Security Administration. Subtle change there, evolution in its nomenclature, but I find that significant. The internal bulletin describes the program's goal as thwarting threats to commercial aircraft, quote, posed by unknown or partially known terrorists. It gives the agency broad discretion over which air travelers to focus on and how closely they are tracked. But some air marshals, in interviews and internal communications shared with the globe, say the program has them tasked with shadowing travelers who appear to pose no real threat. A businesswoman who happened to have traveled through a Mideast hotspot, in one case. A Southwest Airlines flight attendant in another. A fellow federal law enforcement officer in a third. It is a time-consuming and costly assignment, they say, which saps their ability to do more vital law enforcement work. TSA officials, in a written statement to the Globe, broadly defended the agency's efforts to deter potential acts of terror. But the agency declined to discuss whether Quiet Skies has intercepted any threats, or even to confirm that the program exists. Release of such information, quote, 
would make passengers less safe, spokesman James Gregory said in the statement. Already under quiet skies, thousands of unsuspecting Americans have been subjected to targeted airport and in-flight surveillance carried out by small teams of armed, undercover air marshals, government documents show. The teams document whether passengers fidget, use a computer, have a, quote, jump in their Adam's apple, or a cold, penetrating stare, among other behaviors, according to the records. Do you see, this isn't even a slippery slope, you guys. This is fucking slip and slide, okay? We're, we're, this is Splash Mountain. This is fucking Wild Waves. This is Six Flags. These guys are doing whatever they want. <sighs> Absolutely anyone could be criminalized with this kind of bullshit here, okay? Mm. Control, Steve. Air Marshals, note these observations minute by minute in two separate reports and send this information back to the TSA. All U.S. citizens who enter the country are automatically screened for inclusion in quiet skies. Their travel patterns and affiliations are checked and their names run against a terrorist watch list and other databases, according to agency documents. So uh, our author here has a sort of inset of the behavior checklist, um, one of their forms, possibly gleaned from an internal document that was shared or leaked. It says here, explore the behavior checklist. Up top, we have number one. Subject was abnormally aware of surroundings. In parentheses below that, it says, if observed, check any that apply below. Yes, no or unknown. So you, let's say, circle, yes, the subject was abnormally aware of surroundings. And here's any of the things that you could use to have arrived at this observation. Starting with reversing or changing directions and or stopping while in transit through the airport. Attempting to change appearance by changing clothes, shaving, etc. while in the airport or on the plane. Using the reflection in storefront windows, ostensibly, my word, to identify surveillance. Observing the boarding gate area from afar. Boarded last. Finally, was the subject observing other people who appear to be observing FAM team and or subject. So if they're aware of you as a airplane narc, whatever the fuck, if I make you, then you're going to check the box that I made you, and now I'm on the list too. <laughs> Two, in bold, subject exhibited behavioral indicators. If observed, check any that apply below, yes, known, yes, no, or unknown. Three, subject's appearance was different from information provided. Yes, no, we're unknown. Subject slept during the flight. 
apparently a lot of these probably would have had drop downs underneath them if observed check any that apply below if observed check any that apply below similar to number one they would have suggested you know behaviors to take note of general observations underneath that in parentheses it says provide detailed descriptions of any electronic devices in subjects possession in aar uh, for domestic arrivals only, this is a great one. Number six, if possible, provide identifiers, license plate, vehicle description of pickup vehicle in AAR. So, again, these are people who are not on terrorist watch lists. These are people who are not in federal databases or having been flagged in any major way as being considered a threat to public safety. This is you and me. I think my doobie went out. Talking too much, smoking too little. The program relies on 15 rules to screen passengers, according to a May agency bulletin, and the criteria appear broad. Rules may target people whose travel patterns or behaviors match those of known or suspected terrorists, or people possibly affiliated with someone on a watch list. The full list of criteria for Quiet Skies screening was unavailable to the globe, and it is a mystery even to the air marshals who field the surveillance requests the program generates. TSA declined to comment. When someone on the Quiet Skies list is selected for surveillance, a team of air marshals is placed on the person's next flight. The team receives a file containing a photo and basic information, such as date and place of birth, about the target, according to agency documents. The teams track citizens on domestic flights to or from dozens of cities big and small, such as Boston and Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Definitely noticed New York's on that list, Seattle's on that list, <laughs> LA, you name it. I mean, you know, you find me an airport that you're not being tracked at. That would be the that would be the thing to try to find these days cuz I don't think you can. Taking notes on whether travelers use a phone. Go to the bathroom chat with others, or change clothes, according to the documents and people within the department, as they sort of broke down in that inset form that they shared with us above. Here's a map, a few other cities. Uh, they're showing air marshals are following citizens to or from cities big and small, including these airports. Minneapolis, Minnesota, you think you're safe? No. Phoenix, Arizona? Las Vegas, Nevada? Duh. Houston, Texas, I said LA, San Francisco, Atlanta Airport, Myrtle Beach, you're not, you're not going on vacation, you're not even dipping your toe in the, in the east coast of the United States there at Myrtle Beach for a quick minute, or down in Miami, without getting tracked, Detroit, Michigan, yeah, 
your airport too, everybody. Okay? Believe it. Quiet Skies represents a major departure for TSA. Since the September 11th attacks, the agency has traditionally placed armed air marshals on routes it considered potentially higher risk or on flights with a passenger on a terrorist watch list. Deploying air marshals to gather intelligence on civilians not on a terrorist watch list is a new assignment, one that some air marshals say goes beyond the mandate of the U.S. Federal Air Marshal Service. So I'm also worried that such domestic surveillance might be illegal. Between 2,000 and 3,000 men and women, so-called flying FAMs, Federal Air Marshals, work the skies. So literally like a, a police air force. It's like bus security of the skies. Since this initiative launched back in March, okay, so apparently this is pretty new, supposedly. Dozens of air marshals have raised concerns about the Quiet Skies program with senior officials and colleagues. They've sought legal counsel and expressed misgivings about the surveillance program, according to interviews and documents reviewed by The Globe. Sorry, everybody. Um, let's make that adjustment. Easy now. I am just, you know, experimenting with a little closer microphone position and added a tiny bit of compression in, well, at the mixer level. Nerdy sidebar for you, everybody. At the uh, suggestion of a good friend. You know who you are. Thank you, buddy. Hopefully it'll work out really good in post. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, what we're doing in Quiet Skies, this is a quote, is troubling and raising some serious questions as to the validity and legality of what we are doing and how we are doing it, one air marshal wrote in a text message to colleagues. The TSA, while declining to discuss details of the Quiet Skies program, did address generally how the agency pursues its work. FAMS, Federal Air Marshals, once again, may deploy on flights in furtherance of the TSA mission to ensure the safety and security of passengers, crew members, and aircraft throughout the aviation sector. Spokesman James Gregory said in an emailed statement, As its assessment capabilities continue to enhance, FAMS leverage multiple internal and external sources in its deployment strategy. They have a video about Quiet Skies here for us as well to watch. That'll be in the show notes, of course. The link to the story. Go to the story. You'll find the video embedded in it right here. Um, the globe looks like they're behind a paywall at some point, but you get certain number of stories free access before they 
try to hit you with their subscribe. I try to avoid using sources, by the way, that are going to, you know, put you in that trap where you got to go behind a paywall. Um, hopefully you can either get this through the globe or, as I indicated at the top of the story, this is being covered all over the place right now. So you should be able to find a lot of info about it without any kind of paywall cheesiness. Um, all right. So... Here we go. So they were talking about two to three thousand, you know, in the in that you know air force of fams. Agencies' documents show there are about forty to fifty quiet skies passengers on domestic flights each and every day. On average, air marshals follow and surveil about thirty-five of them. So. Thirty to forty-five is what they're reporting, or forty to fifty quiet skies passengers on domestic flights that, like, they identify day in and day out across the country. Okay, and they track most of them physically. In late May, an air marshal complained to colleagues about having just surveilled a working Southwest Airlines flight attendant as part of a quiet skies mission. "Quote: Cannot make this up," the air marshal wrote in a message. One colleague replied, Geez, we need to have an easy way to document this nonsense. Congress needs to know that it's gone from bad to worse. This is kind of, a, you know, as bad as this story is, everybody, it's in a, in a sense it's a hopeful story because it would appear that this is being made visible to us all by people on the inside involved. So fo good folks who ostensibly are either becoming more aware um, or seeing the increasing overreach and abuse of power in the name of homeland security, anti-terrorism, uh, you know, are talking to each other continuously, talking to each other sanely, and with what sounds like genuine concern and genuine motives uh, that are, you know, being raised that are uh, and, and questioning, I should say, the motives of the program, the legality of the program, what have you. You know, they're, they're helping us know that this is occurring and, and trying to find ways to you know, bring the public outrage to bear to an extent that something could be done, perhaps. So, yeah, depressing, but positive, in a sense. So we're most of the way there on this one. Just like I was saying there, here we go back into the story. Experts on civil liberties called the Quiet Skies program worrisome and potentially illegal. Right? Everything is t said to be legal these days if it's in the name of 
one of these holy grails that, you know, we've just held up and enumerated. So, quote, these revelations raise profound concerns about whether TSA is conducting pervasive surveillance of travelers without any suspicion of actual wrongdoing, said Hugh Handyside, a senior staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union's National Security Project. If TSA is using proxies for race or religion to single out travelers for surveillance, that could violate the traveler's constitutional rights. These concerns are all more acute because of TSA's track record of using unreliable and unscientific techniques to screen and monitor travelers who have done nothing wrong. How many stories have we heard over the years already about people being harassed and indeed assaulted by TSA agents over and over again at airports all across the country? ever since 9-11, again, in the name of Homeland Security, anti-terrorism. George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley said Quiet Skies touches on several sensitive legal issues and appears to fall into a gray area of privacy law. If this was about foreign citizens, the government would have considerable power. If it's U.S. citizens, U.S. citizens don't lose their rights simply because they're in an airplane at 30,000 feet, Turley said. There may indeed be constitutional issues here, depending on how restrictive or intrusive these measures are. Turley, who has testified before Congress on privacy protection, said the issue could trigger a transformative legal fight. Jeffrey Stone, a University of Chicago law professor chosen by President Obama in 2013 to help review foreign intelligence service programs, surveillance programs, excuse me, said the program could pass legal muster if the selection criteria are sufficiently broad. It's gross. It's disgusting to me. But if the program targets by nationality or race, it could violate equal protection rights, Stone said. Well, yes, thank you, but it's going to and probably does, so... Asked about the legal basis for the Quiet Skies program, Gregory, the agency's spokesman, said TSA, quote, maintains a robust engagement with congressional committees to ensure maximum support and awareness of its efforts to keep the aviation sector safe. He declined to comment further. Beyond the legalities, some air marshals believe Quiet Skies is not a sound use of limited agency resources. Several air marshals who spoke on the condition of anonymity because they are not authorized to speak publicly told The Globe the program wastes taxpayer dollars and makes the country less safe because attention and resources are diverted away from legitimate potential threats. The U.S. Federal Air Marshal Service, which is part of TSA and falls under the Department of Homeland Security, has a mandate to protect airline passengers and crew against the risk of criminal and terrorist violence. John Cazzaretti, president of the Air Marshal Association, said in a statement, 
the Air Marshal Association believes that missions based on recognized intelligence or in support of ongoing federal investigations is the proper criteria for flight scheduling. Currently, the Quiet Skies program does not meet the criteria we find acceptable. The American public would be better served if these air marshals were instead assigned to airport screening and check-in areas so that active shooter events could be swiftly ended and violations of federal crimes can be properly and consistently addressed. TSA has come under increased scrutiny from Congress since a 2017 Government Accountability Office report raised questions about its management of the Federal Air Marshal Service. Requested by Congress, the report noted that the agency, which spent $800 million in 2015, has, quote, no information on its effectiveness in deterring attacks. So no accountability, no real report, reporting requirement, reportability requirement woven into this charter from day one. Ever. I mean, at least they're talking about it as of last year. Great. Good job, guys. Late last year, Representative Jody Heiss, a Georgia Republican, introduced a bill that would require the Federal Air Marshal Service to better incorporate risk assessment in its deployment strategy, provide detailed metrics on flight assignments, and report data back to Congress. Well, good job. Good job, Jody Heiss. Without this information, Congress, TSA, and the Department of Homeland Security, quote, are not able to effectively conduct oversight of the air marshals, Heiss wrote in a letter to colleagues. With threats coming at us left and right, our focus should be on implementing effective, evidence-based means of deterring, detecting, and disrupting plots hatched by our enemies. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, they're working on it here. She seems, she seems genuine in her concern, and uh, it's a pretty clear call for that very accountability. That, in my opinion, should have been there all along. Uh, the name of the bill, Heiss's bill, the Strengthening Aviation Security Act of 2017, passed the House and is awaiting consideration by the full Senate. So, as of time of this writing, which was just, you know, a couple weeks ago. Uh, the Globe, in its review of Quiet Skies, examined numerous TSA internal bulletins, directives, and internal communications and interviewed more than a dozen people with direct knowledge of the program. So, and, and that's the overwhelming vibe I got from this uh, story, is that it was rigorous, that it was a real investigative piece. Um, you know, we talk cannabis, conspiracies, and you, right? Well, this isn't a conspiracy. This is real, and it's happening to us. As we speak, this is what we're subjecting ourselves to every time we try to get on an airplane and go visit grandma. Okay. Every time you go for, you know, girls weekend in Vegas. Weekend trip to Whistler. 
to ride in the summer or ski in the winter? Every time you have a new opportunity to be criminalized, categorized, falsely, potentially harassed or have your rights curtailed, restricted, or just even just subtly violated, whether you're cognizant of it or not. Every time you try to interact with the, you know, airlines, the, you know, with traveling. In the modern world. So there's more to this story. I'm not going to read the rest of it. Haha. For once. I know. Um, but you guys get the idea. This is an excellent, excellent story. They have a couple more infographics and um, uh, interesting uh, things here that, you know, we haven't explored in the show here today. Uh it's a terrifying program, if you ask me. Uh, Jana Winter, I thank you for this excellent work on this piece. Uh, I encourage all of you to check out this story, read it in full. Let me know your thoughts on Quiet Skies. Maybe you travel a lot. Maybe you're a member of some of the uh, preferred traveler programs that help you, you know, sort of move to the head of the line um, or have lighter uh, interaction with uh, the security screening because you've, you know, upfront voluntarily, um, you know, uh, chosen to participate in some of these programs. I'd love to hear how it is for folks who are traveling more regularly than me, because I'm telling you, I'd, if I can drive it on the ground, I'm staying on the ground these days. It's just, it bugs me. It, like I said, it really grinds my gears so i'd probably be standing around with a cold penetrating stare using the bathroom and you know taking on you know taking off and putting back on my ball cap and stuff like that suspiciously be right on this list man quiet skies all day all right boston globe um links in the show notes it's a good time it's a good time. All right. Um, we got one more for you, though. One that I think is a little more fun. And, uh, yeah. Well, that's what I've been doing lately, right? We, we get riled up. We get annoyed at some bullshit, some old bullshit like that, like Quiet Skies. And then we just take a deep breath and we light a second joint like we're about to right now. And then we talk about something more fun. Um, and that's how I think, you know, it's fun for me to wrap up an episode on more of a positive note. Although, like I said here, I thank the Federal Air Marshals and the Air Marshals Association uh, for coming out strongly uh, with statements of concern and uh, objecting to quiet skies uh, that is extremely hopeful to me actually in the balance of things so and I, I think most folks hopefully will agree with me in that respect as well so maybe we're not totally lost um, so this is something I think I alluded to last episode um, I came across some cool uh, videos about this I want to say on YouTube and by the way I'd like to uh, mention at this time that I do push every episode of the podcast to YouTube uh, my YouTube channel goes on by the same name as the podcast Baked and Awake 
uh, I would love it if a few of you care to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Usually you're really only going to get a thumbnail there um, in time. Maybe I'll get back to posting a little bit more original actual video content of my own um, directly, but you can find short promos for the show. You can find full-length episodes for the show. Everything is free. Everything is streamable right there on YouTube. You can subscribe on YouTube and get notifications about new episodes when they drop the moment they come out, just like you do with your other favorite YouTubers. And you'll just get the audio of the podcast. You get um, some version of the show notes. It's not the best always in terms of formatting. So um, please continue to let me know, those of you who do consume the show via YouTube, how well the show notes do and don't work uh, for you, whether hyperlinks and things work in there or not. Um, In some cases, I think they do. Um, but in not all cases, uh, does my formatting, you know, get fully preserved down there. Point being, I also, uh, curate a video list on my YouTube channel, right? So when you go to YouTube, one of the cool things about that is you can, you know, keep your own little list of videos that you've liked and you can categorize them and create playlists. Well, I have a playlist there, um, or at least a folder also called Baked and Awake nestled under the channel. Uh, heading, and uh, maybe I should come up with a better title for that um, so that people understand it's not just more of the podcast, the same stuff, but these are videos that uh, I've maybe talked about something uh, like this on one of my episodes, uh, or it spurred discussion or uh, reflection in my mind, uh, and maybe I'm placeholding it there for the future. Um, In almost all cases, though, it's a video that I've already watched that I um, like, for some reason or other and find intriguing and maybe something that you would have fun checking out as well. So I guess there's, you know, a couple of good reasons to potentially, if you aren't already subscribe over at YouTube and check out what we're doing over there and, you know, comment, you can comment on my videos there and probably on the videos that I leave in the playlists also, right. Um, on my channel. So let's have some fun over there at YouTube because it's there and it's, you know, no cost to me. And it's been getting pushed down there the whole time since the start. Um, and I know, you know, 30 or so of you, uh, out of everybody are at least partially consuming via YouTube. So there you go. So I, I, I found this topic, uh, in the last few weeks, found a video on YouTube that really kind of talked about a really interesting, um, geometric shape, uh, called like the 8D lattice. And a, this was a, a sort of a, like a grand unification theory competitor to our friend and media darling string theory. Okay. So this is in the quantum physics, Neil deGrasse Tyson realm over here where we're, trying to comprehend what the flip the universe even is, right? Get a sip here. So, what's an 8D lattice? I don't know. We'll talk about that in a minute. We'll get back to that. That's some crazy shit. Talking about 8th dimensional geometry here, of which our 3 dimensional reality is possibly like a some sort of holographic shadow of it that nevertheless encodes perhaps all of the data of the 8th dimensional universe in some form or fashion. 
horrible butchering of the notion of something that is much better understood and called emergence theory, okay, which we are at the quantumgravityresearch.org homepage, the home of emergence theory and the public-facing page for the uh, communication and dissemination of this information to lay people and the general public by the scientists pursuing it and promulgating this theory, okay? Um, I find it really fascinating, and we are going to do a little intro to it today that is going to be way shorter than the last story, by the way, and just serve as a jumping off point for us to come back and talk about this a lot more, I hope, in the future. Um, at the bottom of this overview on their homepage, they have the very video that I, uh, well, one of a couple of the videos, the video that I watched from them was one of those, are we living in a simulation videos? Um, so at the bottom of this one, we have the what is reality official film, which is going to touch on a lot of the same topics as the simulation theory video. I did save the simulation theory video to my Baked and Awake folder on the YouTube channel. If you care to drill into that there, I'll probably also drop it in the show notes for you. So let's read the layperson general overview of what emergence theory is together. And uh, then, yeah, you guys go out and we'll read this. Then you go out and watch a couple of those videos and then let's talk about it. Maybe a couple of you already know about this stuff. Let's get more stony, though. We gotta get 8D if we can, or at least approach it. What am I to you? Am I 2D, 3D, 4D, or am I 1D because it's just audio to you? I don't know who wrote this piece. It might be a team, team effort. We'll see. Emergence theory is a unified first principles quantum gravity unification theory currently in development by a Los Angeles-based team of scientists. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Quantum gravity unification theory. All right. Unified first principles quantum gravity unification theory. Wow. Say it with me. Emergent theory weaves together quantum mechanics general and special relativity, the standard model, and other mainstream physics theories into a complete fundamental picture of a discretized, new word for Steve, discretized, as in discretized, self-actualizing universe. At the root of emergence theories formalism, is a concept quickly taking hold in the theoretical physics community 
that all of reality is made of information. What is information? Information is meaning conveyed by symbols. Languages and codes are groups of such symbols that convey meaning. The various possible arrangements of these symbols are governed by rules. The language user makes free will choices regarding how to arrange the symbols in order to produce meaning according to these rules. Fundamentally then, the existence of information must therefore imply a chooser or some form of consciousness in order for it to be actualized. Okay, so let's just super briefly pause to acknowledge that I definitely identify a lot more as like a secular humanist than a like spiritualistic type of person. Um, and I don't have a traditional deistic, you know, interpretation of our universe. Um, is deistic a really real word? Well, I just used it, so there you go. Um, so, but as you already know, I'm endlessly fascinated by religion and spirituality, and I do believe it uh, colors and informs every single theory of the uh, universe and creation that we have seen, including all of those just listed, um, and apparently here with emergence theory as well. So we don't seem to be able to conceive of a universe that doesn't ultimately come back to something that somebody can twist into an argument for a god. Um, and these guys kind of are, you know, falling right in line with that, with that last statement. So it's interesting. Okay, so to continue, we identify two classes of symbols. One class contains those symbols that subjectively represent something other than the symbols themselves. For example, the shape of two intersecting diagonal lines, x, can represent the mathematical concept of multiplication. It can represent an English letter, or it can represent a kiss. The shapes, known as the letters D-O-G, can represent a certain animal that we all know and love, but they can also represent anything else if we decide that they do. Right? They could be initials for anything else, right? Department of Gardening, whatever. The second, and arguably more fundamental class of symbols are those symbols that represent themselves with ultra-low subjectivity. An example of this is the shape of a square representing the shape of a square. Such geometric language, using geometric symbols, could express geometric meaning. Reality is experimentally observed to be geometric at all scales. From the Planck level, 
to the largest structures. As above, so below. That was my interjection, and obviously not my saying. <laughs> Just instantly came to mind. Our group hypothesizes that an entirely geometric language or code using geometric symbolism is the fundamental way in which meaning in the form of our physical reality is expressed by well we'll get to that they say I let it go out again. A central feature of reality behaving geometrically is that all fundamental particles and forces in nature, including gravity, can transform into one another through a process called gauge symmetry transformation in a manner that corresponds precisely to the vertices of the eight-dimensional polytope of a crystal called the E8 lattice. However, we do not appear to live in an eight-dimensional universe. Experimental evidence indicates that we live in a universe comprised of only three spatial dimensions. What kind of geometric language or code then would express a geometric three-dimensional reality that is deeply linked to the eight-dimensional E8 lattice? We believe the answer is in the language and mathematics of quasicrystals. A quasicrystal is an aperiodic, but not random, pattern. A quasicrystal in any given dimension is created by projecting a crystal, a periodic pattern, from a higher dimension to a lower one. That's that holographic sort of reference I made there. For example, imagine projecting a three-dimensional checkerboard or cubic lattice made of equally spaced and sized cubes onto a two-dimensional plane at a certain angle. The 3D cubic lattice is a periodic pattern that may stretch out infinitely in all directions. The 2D projected object is not a periodic pattern. Rather, it is distorted due to the angle of projection, and instead of containing only one shape that repeats infinitely like the 3D crystal does, it contains a finite number of different shapes called prototiles bear with me bear with me here that are oriented relative to one another in specific ways governed by a set of mathematical geometrical rules to fill the 2D plane in all directions by analyzing the 2D projection it is possible with the correct mathematical and trigonometric toolkit to actually recover the, quote, mother object in 3D, the cubic lattice crystal in this example. A famous example of a 2D quasi-crystal is the Penrose tiling conceived by Roger Penrose in the 1970s, in which a 2D quasi-crystal is created by projecting a five-dimensional cubic lattice to a 2D plane. Let's see if I can find the Penrose tiling by highlighting 
Roger Penrose. And seeing what we can find. They don't show it. Let's see. We'll go five-dimensional cubic lattice to a 2D plane. See if we can see. No results. Interesting. That's probably just my cruddy little on-screen search attempt there, but because I want to see that shape. I might even pause and find one. All right, bear with me. Okay, found him, and it only took a second. I just had to go jump out and go into actual another tab and search in Google. Uh, or actually, I use DuckDuckGo right now, which supposedly is a little bit more discreet, whatever. Um, don't mean to be glib about that. We talk about it all the time. So uh, I found them. They're really pretty. They're really intricate. They remind me of fractals. Okay. They remind me of, um, remember magic eyes puzzles, some of those, uh, patterns and things. This is the 2d projection that is, um, and then, uh, interspersed with that image search. All I did was 2d quasi crystal. Um, then I found, you know, you can see here in the very first search results that come up a couple of what looks like must be the 5d, uh, shapes that these are projected down from. Um, and they look like buckyball type, um, you know, dodecahedron-esque uh, structures, uh, something like that. Okay, I think we finished that one. And uh, so, <laughs> cool, cool looking shapes. And the video, Are We Living in a Simulation, shows a couple different animated you know, graphics of the 8D lattice and what the 3D projection of that looks like. So I definitely will include that in the show notes for us. All right. To continue, though. And we're almost there on this one. It's just the intro that they give us and you know, we got to keep spending some time with this one for sure to really get it, to grok it, to have a chance of grokking it, especially lunkheads like me. A sip of water. Instagram's telling me now that bubbly water may prevent you from losing weight. Isn't that great? Because it stimulates appetite or some bullshit coming from my bubbly water. Emergence theory focuses on projecting the eight-dimensional E8 crystal to 4D and 3D. When the fundamental 8D cell of the E8 lattice, a shape with 240 vertices known as the Gosset polytope, is projected to 4D, two identical 4D shapes of different sizes are created. <laughs> the ratio of their sizes is the golden ratio. You know, phi, pi, etc. Fibonacci. Each of these shapes are constructed, uh, you know, sacred geometry, excuse me. Each of these shapes are constructed of 600 three dimensional tetrahedra, rotated from one another by a golden ratio based angle. We refer to this 4D shape as the, quote, 600 cell. The 600 cells interact in specific ways. They intersect in seven golden ratio related ways and kiss in one particular way 
to form a 4D quasi-crystal. Crazy shit. By taking 3D subspaces of this 4D quasi-crystal and rotating them from one another at a certain angle, we form a 3D quasi-crystal that has one type of prototile, a 3D tetrahedron. On a TV or computer screen, the smallest indivisible unit is a 2D pixel. In our 3D quasi-crystalline reality, the tetrahedron is the smallest indivisible unit. A 3D pixel of reality, if you will, right? They're likening it to a pixel in 3D. Each tetrahedron is the smallest possible 3D shape that can exist in this reality. The length of each of its edges is the Planck length, right? That we can't measure below Planck level. The shortest possible length known in physics, over 10 to the 35 times smaller than a meter. These 3D pixels combine with one another small, uh, according to specific geometric rules to populate all of space. On a 2D screen, the pixels never move. They simply have different brightness and color values, and an illusion of meaning in the form of a picture is created by their combined values. This is where the shit gets crazy, guys. Similarly, the tetrahedra in the 3D quasi-crystal never move either. What? That's like the fundamental interconnectedness of all things. Right there. I don't know. So they say they never move either. Instead, they act as a binary language. In any given moment, each tetrahedron can be chosen by the code operator to be either on or off. If it's on, it can be in one of two states, rotated left or rotated right. Imagine a single, frozen moment in time throughout the entire universe. Let's call this moment, moment one, for the purposes of illustration. In moment one, the 3D quasi-crystal filling the entire universe is in state one. And in this state, some tetrahedra are on, some are off, some are rotated left, and some are rotated right. Now imagine the next frozen moment in time. Moment two. In moment two, the quasi-crystal is in state two. In this new state, many of the tetrahedra are in different states from their states in moment one. Now imagine a hundred of these moments. Now imagine an animation of all these frozen moments. If you think of a movie, the moving image is composed of a single, frozen frames that are filmed and projected at a certain speed. 24 frames per second, right, in most modern movies, they point out. In our model, one second contains 10 to the 44 frozen frames. Over many of these frames, patterns emerge on the 3D quasi-crystal. These patterns become more and more meaningful and sophisticated with time. 
Gradually, patterns resembling and acting as particles form on the quasicrystal. In fact, one of the most groundbreaking predictions emergence theory will make about a specific pixelated substructure of electrons, particles currently thought of without proof as dimensionless. With time, these particles take on more and more complex forms, and eventually the reality we all know and love emerges. Emergence theory views space-time in a way that builds on Einstein's space-time model, in which the future and past exist simultaneously in one geometric object. We view this object as a system in which all frames of space-time interact with all other frames all the time. In other words, there's a constant, dynamic causality loop relationship between all moments in time in which the past influences the future, and the future influences the past. I know. <laughs> Breathe. We view consciousness as both emergent and fundamental. In its fundamental form, consciousness exists inside every tetrahedron slash pixel in the 3D quasi-crystal, in the form of something we call viewing vectors. Think of viewing vectors as micro-scale observers in the traditional quantum mechanical sense. These observers actualize reality by making ultra-fast, Planck-scale choices about the binary states of the pixels. On, off, left, right. At every moment in time. This fundamental, primitive, yet highly sophisticated form of consciousness steers the patterns on the quasi-crystalline point space toward more and more meaning. Eventually, consciousness expands into higher degrees of order, such as nature and life as we know it. From there, life and consciousness keep expanding, growing exponentially into all corners of the universe. Imagine humankind one day populating trillions of galaxies. It's instantaneous communicative channels and high levels of consciousness growing over time into a massive, universal-scale neural network. A collective consciousness of sorts. This collective consciousness conceives the fundamental, primitive consciousness that powers the quasi-crystal form. Excuse me. Let's rewind that sentence back to... This collective consciousness conceives the fundamental, primitive consciousness that powers the quasi-crystal from which it emerges. So, they say, they postulate here, A creates B, B creates C, and C creates A. They conclude, there are no known laws in physics that place an upper limit on what percentage of the universe can exponentially self-organize into free will systems such as humans. Indeed, 
physics allows the possibility that all the energy of the universe can be converted into a single conscious system that itself is a network of conscious systems. Given enough time, what can happen will eventually happen. By this axiom, universal emergent consciousness has emerged via self-organization somewhere ahead of us in 4D space-time. And because it is possible, it is inevitable. In fact, according to the evidence of retro-causality time loops, that inevitable future is co-creating us right now, just as we are co-creating it. Ah, uh, yeah. So... Emergence theory, everybody. <laughs> uh, let's go check this out together. I'm, I don't know. I'm tripping. I'm into it, though. I think it's awesome. It's wild. Uh, it's kind of consistent with a lot of what uh, physics and quantum physics in particular has already sort of been pointing at in a lot of different ways. Uh, multiverse theory and string theory, you know, chaos theory, game theory. There's a lot of, well, now I'm mixing some theories up, so let's not, let's just stop right there. But, This reminds me of early and highly influential theories that I heard of that I think this is built upon. And that is, uh, in particular, the holographic universe. I believe the author was Michael Talbot on that, and that was released, I want to say, early, early 90s or late 80s. I think it was like a second edition by that time I think they had an earlier one too but um, this reminds me of the holographic universe in that theory um, fun stuff though so quantumgravityresearch.org is where we found that alright and it will be in the show notes and we're gonna be doing more with it for sure um because it's a fun one and I think it's fertile ground all right so you know that was those were the two stories the two main stories for the week we didn't do a strain of the week per se uh once again we've just been kind of enjoying smoking and telling stories the last couple of weeks uh looking forward uh in just a couple of days to my friend Goldilocks coming into town uh he and his lady are coming into town for hemp fest and for a long weekend in the Seattle area in general to check out the beautiful Pacific Northwest. I don't know. I think it might be one, if not both of their first time out here. So we'll see. But um, we have uh, made firm plans to hang out together and I'm hoping to have them by the house to see my own garden, uh, possibly down to the work garden to check that out. Uh, and then we're going to go down and hang out at Hempfest uh, together. Uh, this coming weekend as well. So look forward to that. Uh, I think I'm also going to be, I'm going to be at Hempfest much of the weekend is my plan right now on and off. And I'm going to try to be going down there with my good buddy, Palu as well. Palu, holler, buddy. Good to hear from you. We were talking today. Um, I've got a 
review of some uh, cannabis-related experiences that Palu's got for me uh, in the can that we're going to save for next week. Uh, But I'm looking forward to including that in our very next episode, which will be, I want to say, the first episode of, we're going to call it season three for whatever that's worth, okay? And that's going to be because it'll be uh, post one year of recording, right? We'll be in the new, we'll be in our second year of the show. So as I say so often, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, Every single person who reaches out and lets me know behind the scenes that they heard something, they enjoyed something, they liked something, they had a question about something, uh, I'm tickled every time. So get at me on Instagram, get at me on Facebook. We have a Facebook page for the Baked and Awake podcast, goes just by Baked and Awake. You can message me directly on either of those platforms readily. You can email me directly. I love email. Talk to us at bakedandawake.com. I, uh, in addition to the HempFest-related content and Palu's review next week, um, I've been reading up on another sort of church scandal that maybe many of you uh, who are uh, like me, sort of like morbidly fascinated with uh, Christianity and uh, it and its good, bad, and ugly. Uh, the Willow Creek Church, mega church, uh, their longtime pastor uh, recently resigned under a cloud of uh, sort of, you know, I won't call it, I won't like incorrectly label it like Me Too uh, uh, drama and charges, but by all means, a pattern of uh, terrible behavior with women. And of course, he's a married guy. Um, we're looking into it. I've, I've watched a couple videos about it already, including a couple of internal church videos, again, saved to my YouTube channel, Baked in Awake Folder. Um, these are like Willow Creek Church members internally talking about it all together, like church elders and things like that, um, you know, concerned parishioners, uh, and, and indeed the, uh, pastor himself participating in like some Q and A and internal sort of accountability about this, um, which then later ended up giving way to him, you know, as more and more things came out, him eventually retiring, um, resigning, that is under, you know, some embarrassment. So, um, yeah, not to totally tip that story, but we're going to get into it next week. So, uh, if you know anything about it, if you or a family member was a member of that church or involved at all, um, you know, as a, uh, member of that community, which was, I understand enormous. Um, so I imagine this isn't that far-fetched of a notion. Um, I'd love to hear from anybody who has any thoughts or feelings or insights about this. Uh, this harkens back and, you know, brings to mind my Mars Hill related episodes from a while back. Um, and continues to make me think about my long promised, um, episodes that I would like very much to do on the Jehovah's Witness Church, among others. Um, so yeah, looking forward to that. Um, couple last sort of shout outs and hellos and thank yous. Uh, my friend Legion of Bud on Instagram. Bang! Uh, my good buddy Monkey Shorts 
thanks for the album, buddy. I love it. I hope everybody enjoyed uh, Monkey Short's tune download on the last episode on the outro. (coughs) (coughs) Mrs. Castro's Garden. Uh, Everybody that I'm listing right now that I'm talking about, you'll find their links to their Instagrams in the show notes. Uh, Isa and Mika Wuri, my friends from the UK, hosts of the Young, Free, and Coupled podcast. My good buddy Eli, from the Not So Crazy podcast of Blizzard the Wizard and Eli. Congratulations on your move and your new job, buddy. I hope New York treats you right. I know it will. It's an incredible place. I'm grateful to have been born there and grown up there for as many years as I did. Uh, intro music right after my walk in the alley by my friend also easily findable and awesome uh, to follow on Instagram Animal Tremor from Russia I believe thank you for the intro and outro music my friend I love it just an original piece composed by Animal Tremor for me that we're using on the show and, and loving so Right now, as always, our background music for the episode has been provided by the incomparable Auntie Lode. You can find Auntie's links in the show notes, Animal Tremor in the show notes. Finally, thank you to my friends Shade and Lily Bongwater. You know why. Ladies, appreciate you both. Appreciate all my friends over at the Damaged Goods Network. Check them out. You can find our podcast right there at damagedgoodsinc.com. Really looking forward to the coming year. Looking forward to continuing collaborations and uh, getting projects off the ground with my friends over at Top Tree, as well as others. I hope to do another run of really awesome souvenirs, unique souvenirs uh, for the show with my friend Oli Demon in the coming year. Uh, you name it. We gotta get stickers off the ground. I owe everybody stickers for like a year now. It's fucking gross. Okay, I'm really sorry. I'll get it going. Alright? Uh, I know you can get them at the tea Public Shop and nobody wants that. I know. Um, Alright. You guys have been so patient. And so great, as always. So I'm going to let you get back to it. Uh, Look forward to another episode coming real soon with some uh, fresh and fun voices like Goldilocks and my friend Palu. And between now and when I see you next, I know you're going to smoke your indica. And I know you're going to.